Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hi, I'm supernatural thriller author J.F. Penn and you're listening to Genretainment. Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of Genretainment at SciFiPulseRadio.com. We're your hosts, Marks and Julie. Genretainment is where we talk about what's happening in the world of film, TV, and web series. We give you interviews with writers, directors, producers, and actors in both independent and not-so-independent creations. Now for this 98th episode, we talk to editor, publisher, literary agent, and writer Sean Coyne, who will be discussing his information-packed new non-fiction book, The Story Grid, What Good Editors Know. Sean tells us about his career in publishing and talks in-depth about this new book, The Story Grid, a method that he has used for over 300 books in his career. So get ready to learn all about genre and how to edit your own story. But before we get started with that interview, we should point out that the music you just heard at the beginning of the show was a snippet from the theme song from our web series, Reality On Demand. It was a song composed and performed by our friend T. Sean Hardy. You can find our web series at realityondemandseries.com. Now let's get started with our interview with Sean Coyne. Well, hi, Sean. Thanks for being on the show. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Now, we really enjoyed your book, Story Grid, What Good Editors Know. Kind of curious, before we get too in-depth about that book, kind of curious about your career. You know, you've had a really long, successful career as as an editor, publisher, literary agent, writer. How'd you get started in, in the whole book field in the first place? When I first got out of college, I thought I was going to go to medical school. And so I wisely took a year off to figure out exactly if I really wanted to do that. So while I was sort of goofing around, I was um, I was acting for a lot of different reasons. And I met my wife at Williamstown Theater Festival one summer. And when we uh, we got together, one of us had to get a job. So, uh, <laughs> so she was a much, much better actor than I was. So I decided that it best be me. And so I, I tried to figure out exactly what it is that I really love to do that I could possibly get paid for. And the first thing that came to me was read. Luckily, I um, applied for a bunch of, you know, entry-level positions in New York publishing. This is around 1991, 1992. And I, I started from there. I started at Dell Publishing back in 1992. Wow. That's great. And the great thing about it was that it was really at this transitional moment in book publishing history. And it was sort of old school because we didn't have computers at the time. And uh, an editor would be assigned uh, an assistant. And the assistant would sort of have to learn at the, at the desk of, of his editor. And I was lucky enough to work for two editors. One was the editor-in-chief of Delacorte Press, which was the hardcover division of Dell Publishing. And Dell was this major, major mass market publishing company um, for years and years and years. And one of the people I got to work with early on in my career was Elmore Leonard. So it was a wonderful opportunity to be able to watch a master writer sort of go from draft to draft to draft. You know, at that point, he had written a good 30 books. And I was uh, lucky enough to work uh, alongside his editor, Jackie Farber, on uh, Pronto, which actually became um, a television series justified years and years ago, uh, years ago. So it was a wonderful introduction to the craft of writing in a very, very early age. And through the years, I was always really fascinated on story structure and how exactly writers were capable of putting together these amazing stories uh, seemingly you know, overnight. So you know, through the years in, in book publishing, I went from Dell Publishing to St. Martin's Press, and then I went to Doubleday, and then I started my own company. All through that time, about a period of 20 years, on the side, I would sort of be studying story structure to figure out how to best help writers solve their, solve their problems. You know, the primary problem is, is the book, you know, working? Is it something that uh, the average reader would really enjoy? And so I got, you know, I dove deeply and deeply into, you know, story structure. I took Robert McKee's course. I did a lot of reading, um, you know, everybody from Norman Friedman's theories to, um, you know, George Pulte, 
to Aristotle, Plato, to really to try to sort of like parse it all the way back to the beginning of storytelling. And it's been a wonderful journey and a wonderful time. And I've applied those principles throughout my career to, to great success, I, I would say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Now, what I learned from that story is that you owe your wife because it was because of her <laughs> that you found the correct career. <laughs> That's correct. If, if she wasn't as talented as she is, I would probably you know, be doing Sunday in the Park with George somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> You mentioned a few names. You have like tons of of people you've worked with uh, over the years. Um, yeah, just pick one. They're actually like you know Betty White. Woo! And of course Robert McKee. You mentioned. His, okay, is Betty White just as awesome in person as she seems? Well, the, the thing about Betty White is that she has written so many wonderful books, and you know one of my jobs when I was at St. Martin's Press was to sort of buy the paperback rights to very successful hardcover books. And the thing about Betty White is that she, um, she has this really long track record of books about animals. Mm-hmm. And what I discovered when I was at St. Martin's, I was in the paperback division at the time, was that if you were able to get the right sort of package, meaning cover, with the right animal and have Betty White's name on it, you were good to sell a good ten to 15,000 copies. So... <laughs> So it was sort of, um, you know, predatory relationship more than, you know, <laughs> a hand thing. You've taken all this experience, if you learned, um, and have written this book, The Story Grid, which is a method that it sounds like you've developed over the years with your editing. You know, we really enjoyed it. Curious what motivated you to take it from a concept to use to actually putting it in this book for everyone else. Well, you know, just going back a little bit to my career, what I discovered very early on is that there was no textbook to learn how to edit a book. There are certainly textbooks to teach you how to correct grammar, to help with style. You know, the E.B. White and Strunk and White's book is, you know, a classic. Mm -hmm. And you've got all the great copy editing resources, thesauruses, dictionaries. But when I started in book publishing, I, I said, you know, I went to my editor and I said, uh, you know, what's the preeminent book on on editing, uh, you know, story editing? And she sort of drew a blank and said, well, that's not really the way it works. The way it works is that, you know, you'll sort of watch the way the way I work. And I used to watch the way the editor that I used to work for work. And it's sort of a mentorship. And I found that very strange because it's a very intense discipline to learn and so what I said to myself over the years was, you know, I, I need to teach this to myself. Mm-hmm. So uh, the reason why I wrote the book, The Story Grid, was, you know, I found a big, big hole, you know, over the past 20 years. And I wanted to create a system, you know, it's, it's one system that a successful New York editor has used over his career to great success that is simple enough and easy enough to understand that a writer can read this book and learn how to edit themselves. Hmm. Um, one, of the, one of the biggest difficulties today in, in big New York publishing is editors don't have the time to do the kind of story editing that I was afforded when I was younger. Hmm. Um, and that's for a number of reasons. Primarily, they're acquisitions editors. They're basically, their job is to find the books that are going to sell the best and become bestsellers. So um, back when I started, there used to be sort of like a bullpen approach to developing talent. So you would have sort of genre interests among your editors who would find new talent and work with them from book to book to book. They wouldn't pay them a lot of money, but they would publish them and they'd work hard to make their career, you know, pick up a little bit of steam with each and every book. And then at some point they would hit a tipping point and they would become a best-selling writer. And those are the careers of people like Harlan Coben, who I acquired when I was at, at Dell Publishing, you know, 20 years ago. <laughs> it took him a good five or six books became, before he became a bestseller. Michael Connolly is another example. I published Michael Connolly when I was at St. Martin's in paperback. Um, and, you know, this was way before he was a major New York Times bestseller. James Lee Burke, Robert Crace. Um, these are some of the preeminent names in, in crime fiction today they got their start early on with, you know, sort of younger editors working with them from book to book and helping edit their stories. So, but back to your original question, the reason why I wrote the book is 
I didn't want everything that I've learned over my career to just sort of die with me. Um, and so I thought, you know, oh, and I was talking to my business partner and, and good friend, Stephen Pressfield. And I said, oh, Steve, you know, I'll just uh, I'll bang out a little paperback, you mm -hmm. know, about how to edit. And, you know, we'll be done. We'll put it under our little publishing company and everything will be fine. And, you know, three and a half years later, uh, we finally did publish the story grid. But what, what you discover is that when you when you do th so many things intuitively to actually take that intuitive knowledge and put it down on paper and make it make sense to people is quite a task. So yeah. <laughs> I, I'm quite relieved to have the book finally out of my brain and now people can actually lift it. I mean, it's a big brick of a thing and I, I can't believe you guys are even able to get through it. So congratulations <laughs> on that. <laughs> yeah. And, and what you're really describing to me, it, it seems like what's really happened, not just in the world of publishing, but just, I don't know, the working environment in general in America, it used to be that uh, you got hired on and they would teach you and groom you and you kind of worked your way up the ranks in a, in a company. And nowadays they expect you to already know stuff companies don't want to train. And if, instead of um, promoting within, they'd rather just hire someone new from somewhere else. <laughs> no, and, that's true. And yeah. there's, there's no real uh, learning the ropes from mentors and working your way up. And I, I think that's kind of a shame. Because I think a well, lot of talent doesn't get cultivated, not just in the world of literature, you know, but certainly it's noticeable in that. No, I would absolutely agree with that. I mean, in my in my 25 year career in publishing, the, the number of editorial jobs, meaning editors full time employed at the major publishing houses has has decreased by at least 50 percent. The reason why that is, is because there's tremendous competition to have big best-selling blowout, you know, sort of tentpole, you know, storytelling. In order to do that, you don't really want to spend a lot of time training the younger people. You'd rather just hire a pro and let them run with it and, and bring in the great big talent. But on the opposite side, there is so much opportunity for people to learn by themselves, to be their own autodidacts in a way that there just never was when I was younger. I mean, there was no source for me to be able to go out and learn the things that I've learned over, over my career back when I was 26 years old. Mm -hmm. But today, and this is one of the reasons why I started storygrid.com, was to give people who really wanted to learn editing craft the opportunity to teach it themselves without cost. I mean, everything on storygrid.com is for free. It's the same content that's in the book. If you love the content in StoryGrid and you can't afford the book, you're still going to be able to teach yourself how to be an editor. And I think that's a really important point to get across. Um, you know, I would love everybody to run out and buy this book and buy the ebook and you know put a lot of money in my bank account. But the reality is, is that <laughs> the, the most important thing is to help writers become their own editors and to become really better craftsmen. And if you can do that, the quality of storytelling will only get better and better and better. And writing will become more and more fun mm -hmm. for writers. Right now, I think there's a, there's, there's a moment when they hit the wall. They've got a first draft in front of them. And they say to themselves, geez, what, what am I going to do now? You know, how am I going to tell what's working and what's not working? How am I going to fix the stuff that isn't? But even just the, the very simple understanding of what's working and what's not working drives them crazy. So what they end up doing is asking a lot of wonderful, nice friends and family to read a book and to give them notes. Well, those people are wonderful and everything, but they're not editors and they're mm -hmm. not going to be able to help yeah. in the way that a really strong editor can. So the story grid is all about sort of taking those first drafts and going through them very, very systematically, methodically, and looking at the global picture and the micro picture, and being able to teach a writer how to fix what's not working and make what's working even better. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it seems like it's going to be a great tool for, especially as you have more indie authors, yeah. to help them 
they probably they should get an editor also, but but also to help edit themselves too with with these tools. They'll also be able to tell whether or not the editor who's who's trying to get their business really knows what they're talking about because. You know, one of the things that used to drive me crazy as an editor, and I know writer friends of mine too, is when an editor has really great intentions and is a really, you know, positive energy, but they really don't know what they're talking about. So they'll say, (laughs) yeah, they'll say things like, you know, I really think you need some more oomph in that third act, but they won't tell you where in the third act you need the oomph, what scene, what character isn't working. They can't give you the specifics, so they give you a lot of florid language that can only confuse the writer because the writer can understand, oh, yeah, I guess I do need to pump up my third act, but how to do it and where to start and, and where exactly to, to make that happen is really important to know. And that's what an editor should help you do. So at the very least... Here's a, you know, go to storygrid.com and you're going to get a free lesson to be able to evaluate whether or not the editors who are trying to get your business are capable of actually helping you. Mm, that's a good idea. Yeah, because if they can't tell you what is oomphless, yes. uh, it, it's, I mean, it's like, do I need to have more of an action sequence that tells you the same information rather than these two characters talking in this scene or is that scene working or should I just have like a random circus come to town or <laughs> exactly know? exactly always the random circus it's, it's... I'm, I'm, I'm for the random circus coming to town because you can always introduce a killer clown into the second act yeah, you can never go wrong with that right yeah <laughs> well you guys are on fire <laughs> like boy have i met two people who need my story grid (laughs) this we are who you wrote it for (laughs) i wrote a book recently on web television and i found by putting the things i knew on paper and just gathering together all the stuff that i i learned some things that i didn't really quite know maybe they're just subconscious so i'm wondering when you wrote the story grid was there some things that that came out kind of crystallized that you didn't even realize until you wrote wrote the book oh absolutely whenever you write anything it's sort of a magical experience and i I don't mean that in a woo-woo way it's just there's something that happens when you're creatively just sort of banging out copy and it's hard to describe but you sort of just did marks because what you describe is while you're typing and while you're you know you're you're trying to move your points from a b c to d another part of your brain sort of fires and and sort of gives you a little hints it's it's sort of what steve pressfield calls the muse you know descending and i'm not sure if i i'm completely on board with the actual muse but i do think that there's really something to the metaphysics of the left and right-handed sides of your brain. So when you're really applying, I think it's the right-handed side that's the creative part and the left-handed is the is you know the more analytical part. But when you're really focusing on one side of your brain, the other brain sort of gets to rest and play. So as you're working on the, on something and you've got a clear set goal and you're writing it, the analytical part of your brain will give you a little nugget here and there that you just end up starting to to play with and it this happened to me a number of times when i was writing the story grid now as you know i i do a very deep analysis of the silence the lambs in the story grid Uh and so many things occurred to me as i was going through the technicalities of of you know the scene by scene progression of the story that i just never really even considered before and one of those was really the the deep arc of story that happens in the internal sort of genre of The Silence of the Lambs, and that is Clarice Starling's sort of disillusionment plot. I mean, we think of of The Silence of the Lambs as this amazing serial killer thriller that, you know, just scares the bejesus (laughs) out of us. And it really is that. I mean, Mm -hmm. I'm not taking anything away from that. But what's underneath that story is this lead character who really comes to the realization that, you know, she's being used. She's being used by the FBI. What she thinks is a meritocracy is not a meritocracy. They're using her to sort of goose this 
this psychopath to help solve a crime. Mm -hmm. And until she she reaches that realization, she's not going to be able to, you know, really effectively crack the case. And anyway, you know, I could go on and on about the the internal genre and disillusionment plot in, in The Silence of the Lambs, and I do in the book. But I, back to your, your question, Marks, that is something that, that really came to the fore when I was methodically going scene by scene by scene and analyzing the progression of the value changes in each of those scenes. And I, I discovered, oh my gosh, there's, there's something happening underneath here that I hadn't really thought about. The great thing about writing is the more you do it, the more these little bits and pieces come to you sort of from the ether, from the collective unconscious, whatever you want to say. Mm -hmm. And it's a wonderful way of discovering what you really think deeply inside. Great. In your book, you talk quite a bit about genre. I found your genre five-leaf clover concept really interesting. You know, what most people would consider genre, saying like a Western or a thriller or a horror film or something like that, you categorize as the external content genre uh, aspect. So can you go a little bit more about what the five-leaf clover is, how you kind of look at genre? Sure. Well, the first thing I have to say about it is a lot of this, a lot of these ideas came to me through uh, Robert McKee and his uh, colleague Bass El Wakil, who's a brilliant story guy. And, you know, I can't wait for them to publish their book on genre because they really, they've been working on this for a long time and they're really, really smart. So uh, with that said, I did combine and, you know, from other th sources and whatever. So uh, my five leaf clover is basically what, what genre is basically, forget the French, you know, word and, and, and it seems kind of like obtuse. Basically, what genre does is it manages audience expectations. That's all it does. So, you know, like when you go to see a movie, just by looking at a movie poster, that's managing your expectations. You know, if you see the rock is starring in something you know it's going to be an action adventure adventure something right mm -hmm. so what the five leaf genre clover is are the five the five leaves on it manage one of the expectations of an audience so if i'm going to lure you to you know to read my novel or to read my you know narrative nonfiction book i'm going to have to answer these questions to you now the, the first question that you're going to want to know is how long is this thing going to be? You know, is this going to be a novel or is this going to be a short story or is this going to be a novella? You know, how much time am I going to have to invest to watch this? So that's one leaf of the clover. It's a very simple question. Is it going to be long, medium or short? Okay. The second one is the reality. What, what's sort of the reality that we're talking about here? Is this going to be, you know, realism like, you know, NYPD Blue or Silence of the Lambs, which is, you know, a realistic sort of setting about around and using the FBI as sort of a behavioral science unit as, as the setting. Is it realistic or is it, you know, is it a fantasy? What is the reality that I'm going to be engaging here? And as long as you know, you know, when you go to see the Lord of the Rings, it's fantasy, right? You know, oh, that's what that is. Is or that what you... that is? <laughs> <laughs> but you know immediately. So that's another question that you have to answer. And there's, you know, there's four different reality genres. There's absurdism, factualism, fantasy, and uh, realism. And you can get all this for free at storygrid.com. I'm not going to go into each of them. But the third one is the style. The third leaf is the style. Is this going to be a drama, a comedy? Is this going to be a musical, a documentary? What? That's sort of the style of the storytelling. Mm -hmm. And then the fourth one is the structure. And I could really go nuts on the structure, but basically there's three choices of structure. There's the arch plot, which is sort of what we all think of when we think of a story. It's uh, the hero's journey. Something happens, throws the life's character's life out of balance, and they have to go on a journey until they can get their life back in order. That is an arch plot. Mm -hmm. And there's the mini plot, which would sort of be a series of those arch plots told from the point of view of a, a number of different characters. 
And mini plots are usually, you know, the work of big literary nonfiction, like War and Peace, things like that. Those are little stories that add up to something larger than the sum of their parts. And then there's the anti-plot, which is sort of, it came about in, in, in the middle of the 20th century after the horrors of World War II and World War I. It's, you know, very, very theater of the absurd, you know, where nothing makes sense. You think of, these aren't really my cup of tea and these aren't really explored that much in the story grid because there's no beginning, middle and end. It's just an absurd world that, you know, it's existentialism. It's a lot of, a lot of big thinking stuff that, you know, in my opinion, doesn't really add up to much. Like, like waiting for Godot and... Yes, I think Waiting for Godot actually works, uh, but yeah. most of them But don't. it is the exception. I know what you're talking about. Yeah. I, I, There were yeah. several, I had to read several things, you know, in college that I don't get into it as well either. And I'm like, really? Yeah. Like, I have to read this? And or, yeah, yeah, I never yeah. really got it. Yeah. Was like, it, no like exit. The, uh, was it the... Sartre. Yeah, I, I just... And and it was at a time when it was like really cool on college campuses. You know, there's sort of like the cult of this with the black turtlenecks and the you know right. And, and, <laughs> it had a lot of beat generation Jean Luc Godard elements to it. That yeah, um, and and if you didn't really like it or get it, then you were somehow just stupid. You know. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm more of a meat and potatoes story guy, and I, I completely agree with you. <laughs> but Mark's, Mark's the last the last leaf is the one that you were talking about, which is the content. Now, the content one is what we all think of when we think of genre. Now, this is the place where you find the thriller, the crime story, the Western, the love story, the society drama, horror, action, performance story. And then I, I make one little distinction here that I think no one else does. And I divide the content genre leaf into two things, the external genre and the internal genre. And the reason why I do that is that the external genre concerns things that are on the surface, right? Um, somebody comes and they've got a bomb and everybody has to get out of the way. And, you know, it's sort of like solving the big action piece. So we know on the surface, for, for example, The Silence of the Lambs, the on the surface external genre is thriller, right? Mm -hmm. Or because you've got a serial killer loose, Buffalo Bill, who's murdering people and you have to stop him. That's the on the surface, you know, movement of the story. Now, there's also the internal stories, the internal content genres. And these are the ones that are sort of the, the coming of age story where we see the internal movement of the lead character or, or a series of characters in mini plot move from one state of worldview to another or one state of moral position to another. So you have the redemption plots, you have coming of age, maturation, you have the disillusionment plot that I was talking about earlier with Clarice Starling. These are the places where the external and the internal genres, these are major, major decisions that a writer needs to make as they are working on their novel, or even if they have a first draft, just, you know, taking a very hard, close look at their book and saying, is this a crime story primarily, or is this a coming of age story? Now, th those decisions are crucial because, you know, there are a lot of different values that are involved in moving your story from the beginning to the middle to the end. So you really need to know and really, really lock down what it is you're trying to do in your story. And once you do know, you know what? This is definitely a thriller. Silence of the Lambs, when all comes down to it, it's a thriller. It's a serial killer thriller. And all that stuff I talked about, Clarice Starling, is really interesting. But people go to see the movie or they read the book because it's a serial killer thriller and they're going to get scared out of their mind. <laughs> so Thomas Harris made a very clear choice. He said, I'm going to write a serial killer thriller and I'm going to make it even deeper and have a lot more oomph to it by adding this under the surface 
internal content genre, which is the disillusionment plot. You can probably tell I could go, you know, <laughs> to town on this for another nine hours, but I hope that helps. There's five different leaves. They all answer questions that your audience is going to want to know before they even consider reading your book. They're going to want to know what content am I going to get here? How long is it going to be? Is this going to be realistic or fantasy? Is What kind of style is this? Is this going to be a comedy or a drama? And what's the structure? Is this going to be strange and incomprehensible? Or is this going to be what I'm used to? So those are the five things that you need to understand as a writer. And it's one of the, you know, it's one of the first things I talk about in the book, because these are global concepts that every writer really needs to take into account before they start work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's a great way to break it down. Mm -hmm. The best way I've seen so far, for sure. Oh, so. great. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it does kind of explain, like, I never explain, I'm, I'm the worst person to ask about, like, oh, you saw that movie? Yeah, explain it. Because in my mind, if I were to talk about Silence of the Lambs, I don't just go, oh, it's like this really scary. I'm like, and it was really interesting because the character Clarice, and I like go into like the character kind of plot. Right. <laughs> and like in my mind, I don't notice that that's somehow less of a plot or you know, less important plot than the main one. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's not. It, it's not less important, but yeah, I'm talking about sort of in, in yeah, categorical, yeah, yeah, I mean, when yeah. you went to see the movie or when you picked up the book, you knew you were in for a crime story. You yeah. knew that, you know, somebody was doing something horrible. Somebody was murdering. But I'm always it, the person that goes, but then there is more than you think. Yes. Because it really was about this, you know, and, and yeah. like by the time I get in talking, someone's eyes have glazed over. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just, I'm not the one to ask you. You are an editor is what you are. Yeah. <laughs> I may not know it, but you are. No, I've, 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 I've. You're actually pretty, pretty good at editing. I edit uh, a lot of Marxist stuff. <laughs> <laughs> well, everything you talk about with which genres and such is the 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 obligatory scenes in the genre, and you go in depth uh, right. on thrillers, like we talked about with Silence of the Lambs. But what are some other scenes for other kinds of genres? Well, there's um. Oh, there, there are so many, but, you know, in terms of a love story, the obligatory scene, the obvious one is lovers meet, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You got to have a, a great scene where the lovers meet. Then you've got to have in a love story, the lover's first kiss, mm -hmm. right? Um, and then you've got to have a scene where they break up or they come back together. In terms of a performance story, now there are several kinds of different performance stories, but like the, uh, like the movie Whiplash, right? That's a performance story. Mm -hmm. And in a performance story, Rocky, that's a performance story. In a performance story, you need to have the big game, right? Mm -hmm. Or the big, yeah. you know, the big performance. So in Whiplash, the, the movie ends with the obligatory scene, the most important obligatory scene, which is the, uh, the big performance. And same with Rocky, you know? You, you know when that movie starts, Oh my gosh, I can't wait until they fight. Yeah. <laughs> that is that is the the beauty of a performance plot is that you can build up to something anticipation the inciting incident of Rocky is when, you know, Rocky Balboa gets called in and gets the shot to fight the champ. So you know the obligatory thing is they better fight at the end. Now that's pretty obvious, but oftentimes you will find people who will develop a story that's a performance plot and not give you that final scene. Is that because they don't know that it's a performance story? That's part of it. And another part of it is fear. Because the problem and the challenge of obligatory scenes is that they've been done to death, right? Mm -hmm. So how many times have we seen the big fight in a, in a boxing movie or a boxing story? Over and over and over and over again. Yeah. So we get fear when we have to create and innovate a new one. So oftentimes what we'll do is, we'll, oh, I made a creative choice not to give that scene because, you know, that's just cliche and it's been done a million times. Well, that's a cop-out. You've yeah. got to deliver the obligatory scene. In horror, the major obligatory scene is the victim at the mercy of the monster scene. So we always see this scene and we always, you know, the, the victim has to figure out a way 
to overcome, you know, the epitome of evil in, in the form of this monster. And if you don't give them that scene, you're going to disappoint your audience. So obligatory scenes are really, really crucial to understand in your chosen genre, because if you don't deliver them, you know, people might not get it that you, you didn't deliver it, but they'll just say, yeah, I didn't really like that one. It didn't really, yeah, it didn't do anything for me. Yeah. And so part of being a writer is to find and um, right, right now at Story Grid, what I'm doing is I'm, I'm story gridding the tipping point, which is a crazy idea, right? It's nonfiction. You know, it's sort of like this, the epitome of, of a big nonfiction, big idea book. And I had to sit down and I had to think, you know, through it very clearly. What are the obligatory scenes that a big idea nonfiction book has to have? And one is they have to have a big idea, right? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, and that seems so obvious, but if you're writing, say, um, a love story and there's never, ever a moment where the two lovers are threatened and there is no, nobody trying to pull them apart, everybody's going to be like, well, there was no story there. They mm -hmm. met, they fell in love, they got married, they lived happily ever after. Well, that's not a love story. <laughs> You know, that's, that's a snooze a, fest. That's a Facebook right. photo album. That's mm -hmm. Exactly. <laughs> that's the key thing about obligatory scenes. Now, people always ask me, well, can you give me all the obligatory scenes for every single genre and and tell me exactly all the things that I have to do to fill them out? Well, I could do that, but that's going to take me another 20 years to figure <laughs> but out. But then I would be <laughs> writing your book for you. That's right. What I do know are crime, thriller, and performance and I know some genres and I'll you know I'll certainly dive in there and do the best I can but the way to figure these things out is to pick your five best you know read read your five biggest best books in the genre that you want to work and analyze them think about them what do they all have in common and what you will find are the obligatory scenes and the conventions of that particular genre because those books that satisfy the conventions of a particular genre best all share those things. So for, for Thriller, which I go into very in-depth in, in the book, there's about seven obligatory conventions and obligatory scenes that you need to deliver in a thriller. And in Silence of the Lambs, Thomas Harris, Harris delivers every single one. And he does it in innovative, brilliant ways that you don't see coming until you analyze it again. You go, holy cow, he solved the hero at the mercy of the villain scene in a way that's never been done before. And he sets it up on page seven of the book. <laughs> How did he do that? And then what, what you can do from there is say, I need to do something like Thomas Harris did. Not that I can do it perfectly, but let me be inspired by the work of a master in a way that can help me. Uh -huh. So if you've got five of your favorite science fiction books, read them over and over and over again, make a list of the things that they have in common, and you, you're gonna find that you're gonna be able to nail all the conventions and obligatory scenes, and then you're gonna know exactly how those masters were able to deliver those scenes in unique ways. I think that would be a good tool to use a story grid. Yeah. It's basically what you do with Silence of the Lamb with your five favorite books in your genre that you want to write in. Yes. Because I'm sure for screenwriting, I've done, you know, I've had to break down scripts and study them before. And I'm always fascinated by the little nuances I never caught, the things that I enjoyed. So in a book, I could just imagine all Yo, the little, all the little uh, things hiding in little corners. <laughs> yeah, a lot more corners in a book. Yeah. So with the story grid, you know, you have a few steps that you take. You, one of them is called the fool's cap method. I just thought mm -hmm. maybe you can explain what that is. Well, just to go back quickly, the the story grid basically you've got three stages, mm -hmm. and it's it's so funny to me how everything ends up being in three stages. I don't know why, but it, <laughs> it just is. That rule three, three, yeah. Right. yeah. <laughs> uh, okay, so the first stage is you want to create the Fool's Cap Global Story Grid. Now, what the Fool's Cap Story Grid is, it's just a one-page outline of the entire book. And it, what it does is it shows you the global pro progression of the story. 
and it also will show you and answer all the questions that you need to know about your book. So if you go to the storygrid.com, you'll, you'll see examples of the Foolscap global story grid for Silence of the Lambs. And as I mentioned, I'm working on the tipping point now. So what you do is you fill out that one sheet of paper after you have your first draft or even before, you know, a lot of people use this as a method to outline their book before they even write page one. And I would highly recommend you do that. Um, Stephen Pressfield, my colleague and friend, you know, I got it from him. It's this is really something he I do it in a much more complex way than Steve does. But Steve has been using this method for, you know, 20 years. And what it does is it, it shows you exactly the global movements of the story. So you have your global inciting incident, and then you have your what happens in the middle, and then you have what happens in the end. Once you fill that out, you have the global story. Now you put that aside, and the next document you want to fill out is called the story grid spreadsheet. What the story grid spreadsheet is, is a spreadsheet, and it, it has 18 separate columns that you're going to fill in for every single scene in the book. So you'll be able to track whether or not one of your scenes is working or not working. You'll be able to see, oh my gosh, I didn't, nothing happens in this scene except people talking about nothing. I shouldn't have this scene in my book. So going through your novel or your story from page one in your first draft and taking the time to really create and work hard to fill in all of the questions that are asked on the story grid spreadsheet will allow you to see the global, you know, scene by scene. So you'll have the micro of your story. Now, you probably know what's coming next. The next thing you want to do is take your macro, which is the full scap global story grid, and combine it with your micro, which is a story grid spreadsheet. And from those two documents, you're going to be able to create an infographic meaning an actual diagram of the movement of your story from the very beginning through the middle through the end. And when you do that, you will see where things are moving, how they're working, and where they're not working. Whether or not you were able to abide the conventions and obligatory scenes of your chosen genres, all of the questions that are raised and all the things you need to know about whether or not your story is working and if it's working, can you make it better? Can you make it the best in its genre? So again, you've got three steps. You got to do the macro, you got to do the micro, and then you put the two together and you create a story grid. And from that, you are going to have the most complex marching orders to fix your book that you will ever imagine. And you will know exactly what you need to do, when you need to do it, and where. It's, it's, this is something that I've used for over 300 books that I've worked on in my career. It, it's remarkably helpful to a writer because, because it specifically tells them this scene is not working and this is why it's not working and this is how you can fix it. Yeah, and hearing you talk about it, it reminds me of the, the plot diagramming that you do in like, you know, middle school or yes. elementary school or whatever, when they're teaching you, I don't know, that's what I did. I don't know what they do now, but in reality, it looks very different, honestly, from the plot diagramming that I was taught, you know, so it's like the same idea, but it looks like it's a lot more detailed. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, it's like any, any discipline, Kurt Vonnegut, uh, I, I mean, plot diagramming is not, I'm, I did not invent it in any way, shape or form. And Kurt Vonnegut used to, you know, for fun, sketch out these diagrams of all different kinds of stories. And you can go online and see it. And spreadsheeting and gridding is not uh, original either. J.K. Rowling created the entire um, universe of Harry Potter using a very, very large spreadsheet. Yeah. So the, the difference between the two things is, yeah, it's it's very, very specific it's as specific as you need it to be mm -hmm. now you can you can you can spend years you know going through story grid specificity and driving yourself crazy <laughs> the, the most important thing to remember about the story grid is it's a tool right yeah. so if you are really hitting the bricks and you don't know what's wrong and you're ready you're in great despair 
going through these steps and really taking the time to think about these things is going to be immeasurably helpful. Yeah. It's going to be rational and reasonable. But you don't have to kill yourself if your book is working and if you're satisfied with it. Mm -hmm. Now, are there flaws in all, there's flaws in everything. Yeah. Um, this is just a tool to find out where they are. Yeah, th well, this one looks like it's it's more useful. I remember not getting a lot of, not feeling very helped by the the much more generic plot diagram I did uh, <laughs> when I was younger. I'm sure they were keeping it simple because of you know, right. our age. But now I'm looking at this and going, oh hey, maybe that's what we should have been working towards because this looks like it actually has some <laughs> helpful information in it. <laughs> Maybe well, it's be... all building blocks, you know, it's yeah. all, I, I, I try not to overwhelm everybody at the very beginning of the book because you, you really can get lost in the weeds. Yeah. And so it's really building blocks. So like starting with genre and understanding, oh, okay, genre doesn't mean cheesy stuff. It means satisfying audience expectations. Mm -hmm. Now, if you're a writer and you don't want to satisfy audience expectations, you're not going to have a very long career mm -mm. because everybody writes for a reason. And the reason is they want other people to read them. They want them to hear what they're saying. They have a point of view. They have something to say. Mm -hmm. So you need to think about your audience when you write. I'm not saying you have to kowtow to your audience. And you can, the great thing about it is the audience is so fully immersed in story tradition. We all intuitively know every single thing that I write about in the story grid. We know it in our DNA. Yeah. So when, when people go to a movie and they say, you know, I didn't like it. There's a very specific reason why they didn't like it. They may not know what it is. Exactly. But there is. Yeah. Um, so anyway, I'm blathering, but <laughs> <laughs> no, I like it. But, well, the book is packed with information, but you do give it a nice chunks in each chapter where it doesn't overwhelm you. you you're, you're, you give a path through the weeds, I think, is, is what, <laughs> right. rather than letting people get lost in them, is what Marx oh, is trying to say. Yeah, and it reminds me, you know, McKee's story is is always a must-have book for script writing, especially. And I never really found too many books that were an equivalent. Uh, I know stories more than just script writing, or can be used for more in script writing, but it's very focused, you know, more towards that. Never really found books that really kind of had that same kind of a, um, service for for novels. Until now, this yeah. book I feel is like the, it's like the story for for novels. Oh, great! That's that's a great compliment. Thank you. So it's a great book. I think everybody should check it out, mm -hmm. especially for editors, but really for any writer. And <laughs> um, before we go, what else are you working on? Is there anything else you'd like to promote? Upcoming projects? Uh not really. I, I really have my hands full with the story grid stuff. It's it's a lot of fun. The the other thing is that. Uh, the publisher of the story grid, I am actual, I'm actually the publisher as well as the writer and editor of my own stuff. But actually, I was edited by Steve Pressfield, who's my business partner. The company is called Black Irish Books, and we publish pretty much, you know, gr wonderful books that are, we hope, encourage people to um, really kind of fight their inner lazy bones and, um, <laughs> you know, get to work. I mean, we published The War of Art, Turning Pro, Do the Work, all of Steve's nonfiction, uh, with the exception of his narrative nonfiction, we publish at Black Irish Books. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, anybody inspired should, should check out blackirishbooks.com. You know, they're, they're really, really fun. They're not cheesy kind of I, I really like the practicality of the uh, the books themselves. And so I guess that's the only other thing I would promote is is the company. We're very small. We don't plan on getting any larger. If we do, we'll shut down because that, that was our agreement. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I got to so say, I love, I love the name, Black Irish Book. That's, that's good. I like it. <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, black Irish people and I, I count myself as one. We, you know, we have a short fuse. Yeah. Uh, so it's sort of, you know, using that temperament to fight the inner naysayer within instead of, you know, using that energy outside, you know, turn that that vigor and, and uh, aggressive nature inside and say and challenge yourself and, and don't be satisfied with 
oh, it's just, a, oh, they'll never understand me at work if I uh, say that, or I really, I could never be a writer. I'm, oh, I'm no good. You know, all that crap that we tell ourselves. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> oh, great. So there's that. And then storygrid.com, correct? Yes. All right. Well, thank you so much for being on yes, the show. Thank you. Thanks so much, guys. All right. Thank you. Take care. Good morning. Dr. Lecter, my name is Clarice Starling. May I speak with you? You're one of Jack Crawford's, aren't you? I am, yes. May I see your credentials? Certainly. Closer, please. Closer. That expires in one week. You're not real FBI, are you? Hi, I'm Dean Wesley Smith, USA Today best-selling writer of well over 100 novels and 17 million copies in print. And you are listening to Genre-tainment. Well, big thanks to Sean for the informative and fun interview. We'll have any links mentioned on the show notes at scififulseradio.com. So, we're super close to our 100th episode. Very, very close. We're making a special episode with a few of our past guests, one of which is our very first guest coming back. Emmy-winning writer Victor Miller. Yay, Victor! You probably know him, possibly know him best as the writer of Friday the 13th. But he's done many, many other things in his long, wonderful career. And we have at least two more guests joining us, but we're not going to tell you right now, sorry. No. No. (laughs) Now, until then, on our next episode, we are speaking with filmmaker and con lane expert Britton Watkins. He worked on Star Trek Into Darkness teaching actors Klingon. He also knows Vulcan, Navi, and more languages. He even created his own languages for his film, Sen. We learn more about that sci-fi film and about constructed languages, or Conlang. Conlang. All right. Now, before we go, we want to remind you that you can keep track of us on our Genretainment Facebook page, Marks' Twitter account, which is at Mr. Marks, our website at Genretainment.com, or all of the shows at SciFiPulseRadio.com. So that's it for today's Genretainment. We'll be back soon with all new guests from our favorite films, TV shows, novels, and web series. Genretainment is a production of Alien Jungle Bug Productions. Until Until next time. time. Bad monkey. Woohoo! We made it. I wasn't recording, sorry. Ugh.